Are you creative? That's a rhetorical question, because of course you are. A creative is anyone who makes something from nothing. Creativity is everywhere and in everyone. And that means you. So what's been stopping your inner creative from bursting out? Probably fear. Fear is part of creating something. It's a real bee. But don't worry, we'll help you get through that. This podcast will be your guide to claim your creativity, redefine your relationship with fear, and build a new life centered around creative expression. You're going to learn tools from people who have found ways to manage life's ups and downs by turning their experience into purpose. Think of this podcast as your very own creative community. This is Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. Hey there, it's Lauren LaGrasso again, and I'm here with another creative check-in. So today's creative check-in is all about the Girl Boss Rally because I'm still on a high from it. And there's a few revelations I had from the experience of speaking there and meeting so many incredible women in business. One is that it's so amazing to find that a purpose that you always thought was meant for you actually was meant for you. It wasn't just in your head and find it clicks into place as well as you'd envisioned. And two, it's so important to surround yourself with people who are motivated in the same way you are and who are either on a similar track to you or maybe even more successful than you. And so that you can start encouraging each other, soaking up each other's knowledge and just being around people who are driven in the same way as you. I left there feeling so inspired and so empowered. And when I think of it, it's because everyone I was meeting was so accomplished, hardworking, and driven in the same way I am. Everyone was eager to learn and coming from the same place. And truly, I've never felt more supported in my whole life. And I know that so many other women left there feeling the same way. And it's not like, you know, I highly encourage you to go to the Girl Boss Rally, but you don't have to do that if that's not available to you. Find someone where you're living right now that is a dreamer. Find someone who has a business and you really love what they've done with it. Find someone who's an incredible parent and they're approaching parenting in a completely different way. You can inspire each other to be innovators in your own way, in your own fields. You just want to be around like-minded, positive, encouraging people who are also on the road to betterment. And I think sometimes we're so caught up in routine that we don't even stop to think about who we're surrounding ourselves with because that saying that people say all the time, I mean, most cliches are, are cliche for a reason because they're true you do become who you hang out with. And if you're hanging out with people who are far less ambitious than you or don't support you, eventually you're going to sink closer to their level. Maybe you'll still be the leader, but you're not going to go as far as you could if you're hanging around people who push you to be better and who you can in turn push to be their best self. So find your community, IRL. Obviously, I'm your community and so are the other listeners of the show, but you need something tangible in person too because there's nothing like that energetic in-person exchange. So find your people who are driven in the same way you are, who are positive, who want the best of life and who are continuously learning because those are the people that are going to help bring you closer to your creative goals. 
And just to circle back to the purpose, I mean, I've wanted to be a public speaker since I was younger, and I've always been waiting for my story. And it just kind of feels, I mean, also, I've always thought I would be a good teacher, not in a traditional sense, but in a certain way. And it was so much fun to get to combine my love of performance, my dream of public speaking with teaching and see how it affected people. So if you came to see my talk, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It means so much to me. And just know that just by being there, you are part of my dreams. And thank you again to Girl Boss, Sophia Amoruso, Tanya Medi. You all have believed in me so much, and I can't thank you enough for the opportunity. So now let's get to the guest. Whitney Beatty is an actor, director, producer, entrepreneur, and leader in the cannabis industry. She's been featured in Forbes, Inc., Entrepreneur, The New York Times, The LA Times, and most recently on Trevor Noah's podcast, which is called On Second Thought. I'm pretty jealous of that one because I think he's cute. He's my crush. All right, back to Whitney. Her creative journey started out in a familiar place, Michigan. From the time she was little, she knew she wanted to act and ended up earning a full-ride scholarship to study theater at Michigan State University. After experiencing many disheartening moments of adversity and discrimination within theater, she realized she no longer wanted to be in the spotlight, but rather on the other side of the table, making decisions. She then shifted her focus and got an MFA in film production from Loyola Marymount in LA, and eventually ended up as an entertainment executive at Warner Brothers. While it was great for a time, the stress of the industry eventually started wearing on her. After a major health scare, she was able to try something that she had long shunned from her life, cannabis. And believe it or not, she found it healed her. It was her pain that brought her to her purpose, which turned into her incredibly successful brand, Apothecary. The brand's initial offering was the Apothecary case. It's a sleek and sexy storage and humidity system designed to safely keep cannabis at its freshest, most optimum quality. They are V, V-chic, super functional, and filled a huge hole in the ever-growing cannabis market. Simply put, Whitney is a visionary. There were so many points in my journey where it would have been easier to walk away. It had been easier to take the put money. It had been easier to take that job or to listen to the guy who said that this was a bad idea. But I also believe in listening to yourself. And sometimes you've got something burning in your stomach. I wanted to have Whitney on the show for many reasons. One... She's a rare creative in that she's had success in many different fields, performance, film and TV production, and now entrepreneurship. She's also living proof that with talent, belief in yourself, hard work, and tenacity, all things are possible. She was on the brink of giving up so many times, but she pushed through because she knew her idea was great. I've never had chills so many times during an interview, and I know you'll feel the same. From our conversation, you'll learn how to redirect your inner child, why you should stop saying the word marijuana, tips for the perfect pitch, how to balance your practical brain with your dreamer brain, why sometimes what you think is the worst thing to ever happen to you is actually the best, how to ask for help, and advice for entrepreneurial parents. Now here she is, Whitney Beatty.
Whitney, I'm so glad to see you. Thank you for being on Unleash Your Inner Creative. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh my gosh. Well, you were one of the first friendly faces I think I met when I came to LA. Yay! At the Michigan State Alumni Group. And you were so warm and so generous to me. And I was working on the Ellen Show at the time. And I think we would like run into each other. Yep. And it was just, it was wonderful to see you. And it's so cool and inspiring to see the way your career has flourished and grown and expanded. And I can't wait to talk all about it. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to share. Yes. So speaking of which, I like to ask people when you trace the lines of your life and you look back to when you were a little kid, when was the first time that you realized you were creative? (laughs) I think I I was born creative. You know, my love of acting was my first real, you know, love of creativity and making things. My mother always tells people endlessly the story of finding me at five years old, standing on a stool making a phone call and she was like who are you on the phone with what are you doing and she and I was calling agents because she had told me that in order to be on tv you have to have an agent and so I decided that I was going to find an agent and I had the yellow book out and I was looking up agents and looking you know (laughs) to have that opportunity and it really you know followed me my whole life that creativity and that drive to do things that are you know that make me happy bring me joy How old were you at that point? I was literally five or six. And this is in Michigan? This is in Michigan, like in Detroit, Michigan. Like She's like, there was only two of them listed in the phone book, and you were on the phone. She's like, I literally had to take the phone out of your hand and say, I'm sorry that my child has called you. (laughs) But I was determined, you know, that if you tell me that's the way, that's the path, I'm going to go down the path. Wow, little entrepreneur from day one. Hey. <laughs> so how was creativity viewed in your household growing up? That's interesting. So my family was always very supportive of the things I wanted to do. I mean, I started doing theater around six, seven. Before I got out of high school, I'd done 40 shows. So they were very supportive. My mom took me to auditions. She took me to rehearsals. She came to all the shows. But I think that when I decided to go to Michigan State and study theater, they were like, "Mm, interesting. (laughs) We didn't think this was going to happen. Exactly. (laughs) We thought that this would wear off. And so it's funny because I, I got my undergraduate degree in theater and then I got my master's degree in film production and I made a deal with my dad when I left Michigan State. He was like, you can go and get your master's in film production. That's fine. But if you can't find a job, promise me that in five years, you'll come back here. You'll go to law school. My, both my parents were lawyers. They'll go to law school and, you know, get real. And I've never gone oh, home dads. and I'm not getting real. Good. <laughs> Thank God. Because you're changing the course of so many different lives by not getting real. Exactly. Staying in the imagination. So how did you, because you have the support. My parents are, my mom is like totally over the top supportive where it's like, I can't even believe you because you're too into me. And my dad's like, well, Lauren, you know, like think logically. Did you pay your bills? Did you do this? Did you do that? So like, How do you get that like practical dad voice out of your head when you have to believe in the impossible to achieve something? It's funny because I think that my parents were a good balance because my mother's the same way. Mm -hmm. I'm like, she's a, you know, I'm her favorite. Uh, You know, you're the bestest. I can't believe you. You know, uh, everything I post, she reposts. She's crazy. So I can't listen to her for for real things because she thinks (laughs) I'm made of magic and gumdrops. Which you are. And everybody needs someone who believes that. And and, in all honesty. Because there are dark nights. There are. 
And, Very. And you need your mom to talk you off the ledge. Seriously, mm-hmm. you really do. And so the other side of that was my dad. And he is he was very practical when he passed in 2014. And uh, thank you. He, even now, is on my shoulder telling me, you know, to think practically, mm-hmm. even in making my dreams happen. So a good example of that would be I have this company. And in order to really commit to the company, I needed money. I needed money. And I had to get to a point in time where I was like, how am I going to really be able to fund this to where it needs to go? You know, so do I do I make big moves and sell off everything um, in order to make this happen? Or, you know, do I, you know, what what's the path? And what I ended up doing, and I swear this is what my father would have done, is I bootstrapped myself to MVP, which means that I took all the money that I had in hand that I could reasonably get a hold of to prove my concept. So I'm going to prove the concept, I'm going to build the product, I'm going to sell the product, I'm going to see if it works. And once I was able to get to the point in time where I said, I have proof that this works, then I went crazy and liquidated my house and, and threw the money behind it. But it's being able to validate. And even in creative spaces, there are abilities to validate what you're doing, you know, hitting some milestones, seeing, you know, where things are going. Because without risk, there is no reward. You got to take a risk. And if you don't believe in you, trust that no one else is going to believe in you. But you have to know when to take those risks. And I think I get that from my dad. That's great advice. So basically build the foundation so that you can take a risk that makes sense. Absolutely. And especially when you're talking, you know, about entrepreneurship, I think that that's important. Being able to, you know, you've got a dream of doing X, Y, Z. Can you start doing X, Y, Z at night, you know, from your day job, you know, and build up some client base? Can you build up, you know, that you see that there's a need in the market? Can you build those relationships necessary in order for them to start to hire you? Put those things in place so you don't, you're not just jumping off a ledge. Because I see some people like, I'm just going to quit my job. I'm going to do this magical thing. like, well, your bills are still due on the first of the month. So, you know, in a very, and I'm a mom, so my kid likes to eat every single day. I'm like, dude, you ate breakfast, now lunch? I know. I'm like, he wants me to provide constantly. So I, you know, I've got to think smart about the way that I, you know, put these things together. Um, So I think, and at the same time, I think it's super important that you follow your dreams, Mm -hmm. that you do the things that make you happy, that make it okay for you to wake up in the morning with joy and if you can find a balance of being able to do those things and be able to make it make sense for your dollars and cents that's that magic space um you know and when you get to a point in time where it's like you know what it's time to flip you'll know it you know I've got so many clients at night that you know I'm tired in the daytime you know I'm making more money on my night job than my day that's when it's like okay you're there you're ready so let's talk about what happened before the flip So you obviously moved out here. You had a very successful career as an entertainment executive. I'm curious now because I didn't realize how passionate you were about acting. Did you pursue that at all when you first moved here? I didn't. It's a really interesting story. So yeah, I was I was a super passionate actor. As a matter of fact, I went to Michigan State on a full ride scholarship for for performance. I won the um, creative arts scholarship. So um, I w- I went there to act, and everything kind of changed there to a certain extent. And it's funny because I haven't really talked about this uh, as much. But while I was there, they were doing a lot of family based theater shows. Mm. 
And I constantly was, you know, you can come and read for the role of the maid. You can come and read for a neighbor number three. And I'm like, I do not want to be a maid. I'm not here to be the maid. I want to be on stage with everybody else. And I got into an argument with one of the professors there who said that he didn't believe in cross-cultural casting. And I was done. Absolutely D-O-N-E done. Screw you. So I started doing Lansing Community Theater, which was out in the world. And I did like The Wiz and did some other things. But more so, it really made me understand that in that world, power comes from sitting on the other side of the table. And so I decided that I wanted to sit on the other side of the table. And that's how I found MSU Telecasters. Um, and I... I just got chills. <laughs> I love the MSU Telecasters. I, at the time, I... Oh, we should define what that is. So oh, yeah. the MSU Telecasters, it's something that Whitney and I were both a part of at different times. But it was an incredible community where we made our own stuff. Uh, I was... Were you on the show? I was. I did uh, Six as Wow, which was the soap opera. Oh, very <laughs> cool. So the show was a sitcom. There was a soap opera. There was a broadcast TV show. But basically, it was just an incredible community and people who got together because they wanted to create. It was amazing. It's so funny looking back because as a side note, I go and I'm not going to name her, but there's signs all over, you know, that we're looking for actors and writers or whatever. And so I go over to this girl's house with my one of my best friends, uh, Norman, and we're, we're going over to kind of like meet her and kind of audition and see if there's a part for us. And we come and I, I remember I was a fresh, no, probably a sophomore at the time. And we go to her place and she's like smoking weed weed and she's drinking <laughs> beers and I was like oh, what is happening here these people are wild and crazy yeah, TBT. yeah. put a pin in that <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll find the irony soon um, uh, but we go over and she was you know so cool and so I started working on the show I started as an actor acting on the show and they gave me such flexibility and ability to do really cool things. So then I became a writer on the show and I loved that. And so then uh, my senior year, I was an executive producer on the show and I was able to put, you know, six as well together and come up with these great plot lines. And that experience was like, you know what? I want to continue to do this. And so I decided that I was going to pursue my master's degree in film production. And I went to Loyola Marymount. That's how I ended up in LA because I got accepted into Loyola Marymount in their MFA program, three-year program. And I moved the day after I graduated from Michigan State to Los Angeles. I'd never stepped foot in LA um, and I've been here ever since. Wow. So there's a lot to unpack there. I associate with your feelings about acting with realizing you're not in power because I got out here and I was like hardcore to the floor, like, I'm going to be an actor. This is all I'm going to do. It's all I've ever wanted. And then I slowly started to realize, oh, I have no control over my life. Not at all. Not, not a jot of control over my life. <laughs> and that's when music started coming in and media started coming in because I realized at least I can do these things whenever I want to, if I want to. And if I'm in a position of power, I can give other people the ability to do those things as well. Bingo. But there is something interesting that's happened in this kind of transition where I've had to basically talk my child self down off the ledge because she was here over on my other shoulder saying, hey, why are you betraying us? All you've ever wanted to do is act. What are you doing? Get on the stage. What are you doing? So I'm wondering how you negotiated that within yourself. Did you have to talk your little Whitney off the ledge or was she like, go get him, girl? 
I think I redirected her. Mm. I think I redirected her because that actor is always inside me. Right. Um, the actor is with me when I step onto a pitch stage. She's there when I'm in a room pitching a TV show. She's there when I'm making connections. I use those skills on a daily basis. And I mean, even being able to have a good podcast interview, yeah. being able to, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I'm able to d- redirect to a certain extent. There's still, you know, parts of me that love performance and there's still, you know, and I still get to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think that I've realized that my creativity doesn't just lie in acting. What's your advice to somebody else who's struggling to redirect the child self? That's a good question. I would encourage them to really dig into why, why that feeling is, is tugging because, you know, sometimes to a certain extent, you know, it's a feeling of loss. You know, it's a feeling like if, because I haven't become the superstar, really I've, I've lost or I'm, I'm a loser or I did not achieve this, this goal. And it's really, I think that becomes the, the, the nugget that really needs to be dealt with in, in a real way. Um, and to a real extent that I, you know, I dealt with that too, you know, am I, am I cheating myself by having not, you know, pursued, you know, acting like a crazy person. And I was able to to rectify those feelings. Um, But I would really say that that, you know, I think that's where that pain point ends up coming from that it's, you know, it's that feeling of loss and it's, it's being able to be kind to yourself, to be kind to yourself. And then also be able to find those opportunities that give you that outlet. Yeah. The other thing I want to talk about is thankfully things have gotten better. I mean, when I was at Michigan state, we did do colorblind casting as you should. Theater is theater. So hello. But for people that are still in those situations, because there are many people that have lack of opportunity due to the way that they look or due to who they love, what would be your advice to them on how to transcend when they've got that kind of creative monster coming at them? Two things. Burn the building down. Let people know what they're doing. Um, You've got to be clear with people because a lot of times if you don't bring that to them, they can't address it. So I brought it to someone and maybe they, you know, they didn't address it while they... I was there, but they were able to address it in the future. But, you know, say it and continue to say it. Get other people to say it. Get other people to support you while you're saying it. Um, And the other part, and I believe in this wholeheartedly, is make your own content. They're not going to cast you. You put up a show and you're going to run in the theater next door and you're going to show them that there's an audience for that and that there's other people who want to participate in that and that there's other stories to be told. This time more than any other time across the board, you can really get a hold of the materials necessary to make your own. So partner with, you know, a writer that you know and come up with something. If you want to be on television, do your own, you know, content, make your own sketches, get your name out there. I can't tell you how many people when I was sitting behind a, you know, development desk came to me because they had, you know, a great YouTube following and they're making stuff on their, you know, cheap iPhones. But when content is good, it doesn't need, you know, magic and lots of special effects. Mm-hmm. Good is good. So go out there and make good stuff and then they'll come to you. That's amazing. And you did get that big executive job I at did. Warner Brothers. I did. And it, I'm sure, was amazing for a time. And then you started getting maybe trapped in that dream. 
You do. You kind of, you know, I came out of grad school. I went to, you know, the agency world and I worked at William Morris and I kind of learned the the ropes, you know, it's like grad school part two, down and dirty. Let's go see the inside. You know, you're inside the storm. And being there taught me, being at Loyola taught me how to be creative and get things, you know, uh, from concept to, you know, to screening. But it did not tell me how the business worked. Being at William Morris taught me how the business worked. Um, you know, I left Loyola, and I, it's funny to think of it now. Um, but I had done my thesis film; it did really well. I won the um, the the West Coast Award for Best African American Student Film from the DGA. Wow. I got a screening at the Cannes Film Festival. I was like, "This is awesome! I'm gonna be so rich!" Yay! <laughs> Um, and, I love your jingle. <laughs> like, and, and really, and I, so then I like went outside my little, you know, studio apartment and waited for the money to come rolling from the sky. And then I realized, you know, money doesn't come rolling from the sky. That's not how this works. That's no. not how any of this works. Such a bummer. It really is. Like you, and so, and then I realized that for all the things that I was taught, I had no idea how to get a film made. You know, to really get money in my hand to get a film made. Completely had no clue how that happened. Did not understand the process of how to, you know, pitch to a network and actually get something to production. And so I got that from William Morris. And what I also learned there was that whereas I thought that I was going to work in film and be a film director, I realized I didn't like to write long form. And I still love directing and I do directing um, to this day. And this was around 2004. Reality TV just hit more than it had hit before because there was already, you know, you had your real worlds or whatever, but now we're in Dancing with the Stars and we're with Survivor and all of these things are happening. And I'm like, <gasps> do, do, do. And the sky <laughs> opened up and I was like, I love reality TV. And in reality TV, you know, uh, producers have power and, and we get to, you know, take these real life situations and make them interesting. And I love diving into other people's worlds. I want to know what's going on. I want to know the dynamics and figure those things out. And so reality TV just caught my eye and I was like, that's where I'm going. And I did. I left there and I went to a company and worked my way up you know, did all the jobs like you do. You know, I was everything from a field producer. I started off a PA to the field producer. Then I was, you know, a story producer, segment producer. I went, then I eventually became their director of development, went to another job of director and development, another job of director of development. And I landed myself over at Warner Brothers Telepictures at one of their affiliates as a director um, and then a VP and then an SVP. But I think eventually I realized that, you develop for who is buying. And that doesn't mean that you're developing good things. There's an appetite for crappy reality TV. Crappetite. There's really, there really is. Um, but there's only so long you can make <laughs> some stuff. If you're a true artist, your soul starts to disintegrate. You do. And, yeah. you know, and every job has a directive of things that you're supposed to be working on. And I was tired of that directive. I was, you know, I thought that there were so many other things and so many more worthwhile shows. And, you know, I had all these, you know, great ideas for shows that I thought that could really change people and, you know, do other things. And everyone's like, but we want some more craptastic, please. Craptastic. And I'm like, craptastic. <laughs> exactly. And I was just, I was, you know, so that had tired me out. I was tired of developing the same things. Simultaneously, I was having 
some other issues. I had an issue where I was sitting at my desk. Of course, I was, you know, I was a crazy person. I was also producing this TV show, which meant that I was coming in, uh, working my regular workday from 10 to 6, and I would come back at 9 and sit with the overnight editor from, you know, 9 to 2, 3 o'clock in the morning so I could apply the notes from the network that we got the day before. And I was, you know, living on coffee and espresso and Red Bull. And I'm sitting at my desk, and all of a sudden, my heart starts beating super fast, and I start to sweat, and I can't really get, like, my voice out and I was just like I was literally I didn't know what to do and so I didn't tell anybody I picked up my car keys I got into my car I drove myself to UCLA Medical Center parked my car where the ambulances are left the keys in the car because I'm dying obviously and don't need the car um and I'm not paying valet um in death um and told them that I was having a heart attack and and literally you know when you're having a heart attack they take you to the front so there's like people with stab wounds and all sorts of stuff and they're taking me to the front because like I'm dying friends and they do the EKG and they're like you're not having a heart attack and I'm like what are you talking about like I can't I can't breathe and they're like you're having an anxiety attack and it's the first time that I ever heard that before the idea of you know having anxiety and I've always been a type a person I'm you know if you point me in the direction of what you want me to do I'm going to get done but it was a life-changing thing for me also because then I was on a journey to fix it. How do I fix this? You know, and they give you lots of drugs to fix it and take this and take this and take this. And I didn't like any of the things that they gave me to take. And then in an offhand comment, my doctor said, hey, have you ever thought of cannabis? And I was like, <gasps> what are you saying? What are you saying? I'm like, she could have just like, it's the same for me if she would have said, how about this crack pipe? Um, you know, it was just out cold absurd I'd not really I'd never used cannabis in high school I used it maybe once or twice at Michigan State and I like freaked myself out and it was the first time that anyone had ever suggested that I use cannabis and I basically started doing research I didn't know anything about the plant so I was like why do I number one you know, what is cannabis going to do for me? And number two, why do I feel so negatively about it? Why do I have this bad, you know, feeling of that, you know, I'm going to become a drug, you know, a crazy drug person and never accomplish anything ever again. And so I basically learned the history of cannabis. I learned about Harry Anslinger and how he, you know, in the 30s, you know, basically started a smear campaign for the plant cannabis. He started calling it marijuana. He connected it to black and brown people, basically said that it encouraged them to rape white women. They made people very frightened of, you know, of them. His goal was to get more money put into his department. And he you know, effectively got a plant that had been used more commonly than Tylenol is um, completely banned. Um, he literally said, you know, a direct quote was uh what is it um can uh, reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men that's what he said so it's just like absurd so now i'm understanding okay mm -hmm. this is why i have these negative connotations and then you go you know a little bit for forward and i you know i grew up in detroit in the 80s when there was a very active war on drugs and so you know that also gives you bad connotations and but then you learn about the plant <laughs> and you learn that there's tbd and thc and all these things that cbd can do and look what it's you know doing for ptsd and for anxiety and for epilepsy and for cancer and it's natural plant medicine and it grows from the ground and you don't have to, you know, there are no chemicals, you know, as part of it. And I had started using cannabis for, to, uh, 
you know, work with my anxiety and I found something that worked for me. And so as I'm sitting at that desk to go full circle, as I'm sitting mm-hmm. at that desk um, as a development executive, I started seeing more and more articles about the opportunity in cannabis and how there's all these things going on in this space. And I realized that, A, I knew branding, I knew marketing, I'd developed tons of TV shows for a certain demographic that I felt like wasn't being talked to in cannabis. A lot of times on television, the people that you see using cannabis are bad kids behind a gym, they're naughty stoners, you know, it's no one that you can relate to. But the people who I knew who used cannabis were six-figure people who, you know, were doctors and lawyers and, you know, high-powered executives and agents and were doing just fine. So why don't we ever see that? How come there's no products that were speaking to that person? And so I started to dig a little bit deeper and also realized that in my cannabis usage, I prefer to be responsible in all the things. So, you know, I had a kid at home by this time and I was like, well, how do I make sure that my kid doesn't end up in my cannabis or my dog end up in my cannabis? And how come my cannabis is always dry because, you know, I'm not smoking it every day. And by the time I get, you know, find it on that top shelf where I hit it, it's all dry and like falling apart. That's really odd. And then, you know, when you're sitting down to have a session, you kind of need a grinder and a tray and all these things together. And I'm like searching for all my stuff because I keep it in 900 places and most of it's in a shoebox under my bed. So true. <laughs> it's, it's very, you know, and I was like, this doesn't make sense at all. At my house, I had, you know, my wine in my wine fridge. I had liquor. It was in the bar. I had cigars in my humidor, but my medicine was in a shoebox under my bed. I don't keep you know, any other medication in a shoebox under my bed. I think that that just encourages the Tylenol. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, let me pour this uh, amoxicillin down in this shoebox. That's oh cool. Oh my gosh. By the way, side note, amoxicillin was the most delicious medicine as a child. <laughs> that bubble gum. Oh, I wanted it all the time. <laughs> I love that you the brought flavors. that up. <laughs> so I kind of took all those things and I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to, f- look into maybe making something that's used to hold cannabis. And And what year is this happening in? This is about 2014, into 2014, beginning of 2015. So I... Were we in medical cannabis zone at that time? It was medical. So you could get a card by coughing once and winking and <laughs> it was only like a half wink that you had to like do literally, literally. <laughs> just like throwing them out the door whatever <laughs> goodbye um but yeah and so I you know started talking to cultivators and people you know were telling me like so I was like why is my plant dry all the time because and they're like well dude cannabis is a plant it has to be kept in a humidity controlled environment and if it's not it's going to dry up and your trichomes are going to fall off so you're spending all this money on good cannabis and you're letting it dry up you might as well have bought you know some crazy bad stuff from a guy on the street corner or you know and if you put it in you know a traditional cigar humidor it's gonna mold because it get that's too wet they need different humidity points so I was like okay at that time my mindset was I wanted a caboodle for cannabis I wanted a place for everything I'm like wait can you make one that looks like a caboodle I'm like I totally did I made something that was similar because and that that's where where my head was at and it's funny because it really got to pull on another layer of my creativity because I you know I love to throw elaborate parties. I did a Mad Men party and a Boardwalk Empire party, and I'm doing themed out, bringing in bales of hay into my house. It's just like absolutely ridiculous. I love interior decorating. I'm like obsessed with pictures and and 
crafting and projects or whatever. I've got a Cricut machine. I'm like a What's nut- a Cricut machine? It's um you use it to do lamination. It's like vinyl, like a vinyl cutting machine mm-hmm. or whatever. So I can do my own t-shirts. I can do my own design work or whatever. I'm like, I'm a crazy person across all creative paths. If you let me down there, I'm going to, you know... I'm going to go do my thing. And so this was a new opportunity. Like now I'm going to build a product. Um, And so I, at nights and weekends, started to think and work and draw things and decided, you know, and this was right as I was deciding that I was going to change jobs. And so I wasn't sure if I was going to go find a new job or if I was going to pursue this. And so I was like, I'm going to give myself a couple months. I'm going to give myself a couple months. I've got money saved. I'm fine. Let me see, you know, what I can do with this. Let me really dive into this world um, and see if there's, you know, a place for, for this product and for my concepts in the space. And I've been here ever since. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I have a lot of questions. First, something really distressing and traumatic happened to you in order for you to have this revelation, right? You Mm -hmm. you went through that anxiety attack. You went through trying to figure that out. Do you think that we can have these sort of life altering movements without having to go through thinking you have a heart attack? Or do we have to have something on that level to shift us? Sometimes you have to have something on that level to shift you or else you'll just continue to run at the wall, at least for me. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because if you would have asked me 10 years ago, like 10 years, you're going to run a cannabis facing company. I would have been like, you're obviously smoking your own supply. (laughs) Um, You know, it was not, and not only that, but I wasn't really interested in entrepreneurship on that level. I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur. I used to like make fun of my freelance friends because I was like, you're nuts. I need my paycheck every month on the first of the month. I'm going to be a corporate girl forever. And it was the mix of, you know, health concerns. You know, I didn't want to stress myself out. I didn't want to be in a stressful situation every day basis. You mean as an entrepreneur? As No, as an executive. Oh, right. Exactly. Um, I was going to say, because like a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to do that because it's so much stress. But I'm like, but you're already stressed. Stressed. and But you don't acknowledge that yeah. stress. I mean, anybody, I mean, it's so funny because when you're working in the entertainment industry, you, you would think that we're saving hearts and minds, that we're like performing open heart surgery oh. because it's just that serious every day. I know. It's like the things that people get upset about us, even at my company, I'm like, we okay, guys, we're doing an ad read for, you know, smoothies. I think we can just chill the fuck out. Exactly. Just take two <laughs> deep breaths and let's realize that we are not going to cure cancer today. Yeah. We are just... <laughs> you might brighten someone's day, but also like if the integrity isn't behind it, people are going to feel that when they watch something. Absolutely. So, you know, yeah, that happening. My dad died. Mm-hmm. He had worked, you know, he was a corporate guy, worked his whole life, had a massive heart attack and died. So that kind of shook me up. My son was born that year, top of 2014. So now I'm a new mother. My priorities have shifted. And also it was like trauma, 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 trauma. If you look at that list of things that are like most traumatic in your, in your life, it's like changing jobs, death of a parent. You know, having a baby. So all of these traumas were piling up on me. And it really made me reprioritize what was important. And at the same time, I had to have a real conversation with myself about the fact that what I knew for sure is that I'd made millions of dollars for companies that I worked for. I knew it because I've seen budget lines. I've seen what people are getting paid. I knew that. If there was ever a time for me to make millions of dollars for myself, when was it? 
I'm not getting any younger. You know, there's never a perfect time to jump off a cliff. But if I'm going to jump off a cliff, you know, now's the time. And so I started thinking, you know, am I cliff jumping? Am I cliff jumping? Is today the day that you cliff jump? And so I think all of those things are the stuff that pushed me off and said that if there's this much change in my life, what's one more? (laughs) A lot of people, when they have those trauma piles in their life, they get buried by them. You transcended and grew and decided to take another path. If someone's buried right now, how can they get out from under it and do what you did? Find one string. It feels overwhelming when all of those things are happening. And being the type A person that I am, to a certain extent, it was an opportunity to have something to focus on. I'm going to do all the research now on, you know, cannabis brands. I'm going to figure out if there's a market here. I'm going to, you know, uh, start just pulling today I'm going to do this one thing. And then, you know, the next day I'm going to do this second thing and I'm going to start building that way. And so I didn't look at it as today I'm going to set up and build a company. I was, you know, I'm just going to search down one piece of (laughs) insight a day and kind of pull it together because it is, it's hard and it's dark. And I'd also say that you kind of have to find at least one person that you can talk to because it gets lonely. That gets lonely and entrepreneurship as a whole is extremely lonely. And I think that that is something that people are most surprised by, oddly enough. I mean, I was surprised. I'm like, you know, because as an entrepreneur, if you're working at home, you're doing stuff at home, you could easily not see somebody for a couple days. You could easily stay in your, you know, jam jams and working on your computer or what have you. You can get inside your head and you can believe that everything that you're doing is the most magical, wonderful thing that's ever happened to mankind. And, mm-hmm. you know, why, why change anything? It's perfect. And you need somebody who's going to say, you know, that's a terrible idea. I mean, you, you don't only want people to say it's a terrible idea. But, you know, if I'm like, whatever, I'm going to make jean jackets with, with, with cannabis leaves on the back and, and, and wings. Someone needs oh. to say, Whitney, that's not a great I was idea. I like, wait, I might wear that. <laughs> wings? Not the wings. And, uh, <laughs> but the cannabis leaves sounds cute. See? <laughs> so you, you got, you know, put someone in your life that you can trust. And take it one step at a time. Don't get overwhelmed with how big the mountain is. Just bring your one pebble to the the pile a day and take it bit by bit. So how did you actually make the transition? I know you're saying you made a prototype, but then how did you go from there to now you're in Forbes? Hmm. Because you are in Forbes. I am in Forbes. Crazy. How crazy (laughs) is that? (laughs) It makes perfect sense to me. It's nuts. So it's funny. I, so I came up with the idea. I got myself through product development. I had this case. And my plan was I was going to do a crowdfunding campaign. But a crowdfund, people are going to buy it. I'm going to get the money. I'm going to make all the cases. I'm going to to be rich. It's going to be awesome. And what ended up happening was I raised $30,000 $30,000 from friends and family. And I was like, this is amazing. Also, and through crowdfunding or through word through, of mouth? Through just word of mouth. Wow. Like I pitched my friends and family. Can you just talk a little bit about what that was like? Because I think sometimes it's harder to do it that way than ask strangers. It's much harder. Yeah. To this day, it's much harder. Because that $30,000 is the $30,000 that weighs heavily on me. Mm-hmm. Weighs heaviest. And I've raised a hell of a lot more than $30,000 by now. But that money came from people who I know. And that money came to me because they believed in me 
personally. And so those nights, and it just, it makes me well up now. Um, those nights when it was hard and you want to quit, I'm like, but I've got my auntie's money. My aunt, my auntie, you know, she didn't have a ton of money to give me, but she gave it to me because she believed in me. So it really does make you push through, you know, those hard times because there's nothing more real I mean, I've got people write me $100,000 checks and I don't feel as much, you know, but that accountability that comes from, you know, your uncle who, who gave to you out of his 401k that he didn't have to give. That's what really, you know, it touched me. And it was hard conversations to have because you feel kind of awkward going and saying, hey, you want to give me your retirement money? I, I, I know that you're not rich, but, you know, I could use it. I got an idea, guys. But I swear that that $30,000 is what kept me running. And it kept me running fast. And it's so I used that and I took that money to jump off to do a product launch with the crowdfunding campaign. And so I go and I do a bunch of videos and I do photos and I do a press push and I get a PR person and I spend this money. And two weeks in, I get an email saying that they're pulling me off the crowdfunding site because I'm paraphernalia and paraphernalia is not allowed. And I still, to this day, I think that was probably the most devastating day in my entrepreneurship journey because I'm sitting on this $30,000 that I just spent and now it's, and it's all family and friends money. What am I going to say to these people? What am I going to do? What happens now? I've made promises and I just don't know what to do. And I mean, it was literally like, let me just crawl under the bed and die, please. Thank you. And I, and I did, I, you know, I had to give myself 24 hours to mourn, you know, mourn the loss, mourn the loss of the money, the loss of the everything. And then I had to put my big girl panties on and decide what was next. And I looked at the product and I remembered, you know, all the conversations that I had with my friends and family about why, not only why, you know, I thought this product would survive, but also why it was important for us because all my, my, that initial round was all people of color. Why it was important for people of color to come into the cannabis space. Uh, communities of color have been disproportionately disenfranchised by a war on drugs for years. And now there's just going to be a $50 billion industry and we're not here. We're not participating there. You know, this is amazing growth. Forbes says that there's going to be more jobs than cannabis and manufacturing by 2022. So, you know, all of this, you know, we lived in these communities that were that were hurt, that were abandoned. And are still hurt by it. Still hurt. I mean, you've got people who were sent to jail on a disproportionate basis. I mean, the numbers are very clear that black people and white people smoke cannabis at about the same levels, but black people are getting arrested four to 11 times more often for it. And then they can't get jobs. And then they can't get, you know, they can't vote. They can't use federal student loans. They can, so all these things, you know, become dead in paths. And then I remembered... As I'm like, you know, I was like, okay, I do remember why this is important. Let me throw one more thing at it. And at that time, I think I had, I mean, I took almost every penny I had left in the bank, which was extremely scary for me because I was going through a breakup at the time. I had a small kid at home and I was like, shit, 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 shit. And at that point in time, I also got offered a job. And I was like, do I just say screw it and just go back to work? Or do I just, you know, one more chance? And I was like, 
one more chance, one more chance. Give me one more chance. And so I called my manufacturer and I said, send me a hundred cases, hundred cases. You know, I could, I'll pay you just do a hundred cases for me, please. And he did. He mailed them to my house. And at the time I was living in a house. And so my garage was filled from top to bottom, left to right with these cases. And I had to, you know, personally open each one, kit all the things and put them together, package them or whatever. I was like, I've quit my job and I've started my own sweatshop because it's like not, it's like summertime. I'm like drenched in sweat. Summer in LA is nothing to joke about. No. Oh, it was terrible. And then I spent money and built a website and I didn't know about Google AdWords. I didn't know how to advertise and all I could, you know, and so I just put them up on the website and I was like, I was all I could do is see what happens, you know, because at the same time, you know, I started talking to investors and they're like, it's too expensive. No one's going to buy it. No one wants to spend that kind of money. No one cares. And the website went live and we sold out in six weeks. And Uh. it was everything. It was, it was everything. And so, and I fulfilled each one of those initial orders myself, hand stamped. And that's what taught me. Not only was that great for me to, you know, understand my product, touch my product, understand each part of what it takes to get that thing out the door. But it told me that I did have something. And that little bit of traction was enough for me to continue pitching the product. Because to, to back up. I had read about this group called the Arcview Group, and they're a group of investors in the cannabis space. So, it, you know, I was, this is the first time I'd ever pitched, uh, you know, I've pitched TV shows, I've pitched projects, never pitched, you know, to investors. And I had no idea really what I was doing. I read as many books as I could, and I went on and I did my pitch. It was like a video pitch or whatever. And then the questions that came back, I could tell that they didn't understand what I was offering. They didn't understand the value proposition. They were saying crazy stuff like, you just need to partner with a safe company. And, you know, like a safe, like, yeah, like a lock. Oh. And I was like, well, that's not, that's not like a safe. It's so, they weren't understanding and I got, you know, and they ranked people. So uh, a five was, you know, the best, a one was the worst. And I think I got a 2.3. So I was not invited to come and pitch in person. And I was kind of, you know, devastated about that. So after I'd got this traction bit, I applied to a business accelerator called Canopy San Diego. And it was um, specifically for businesses in the cannabis space who are ancillary, i.e. not touching the plant. And I got accepted to this business accelerator. And basically a business accelerator is like an MBA plus uh, industry specific, you know, immersion uh, in 16 weeks. So you're working crazy hours. You're just, and as a solo founder, it's like, you know, you've got 16 weeks to do as much as you can go. And so that's what I did. I, you know, said no to the job. I went into this business accelerator, um, which was insane. It was, you know, down in San Diego. So I was commuting to San Diego. Um, With your son? It was literally, so he would go to his dad's on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday nights. Um, I got his dad to do that with me. And I would leave on Monday morning. I would get in the car at 6 a.m. So I could make it to my 9.30 a.m. meeting. I would write, work from 9.30 to like 11 p.m. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I would leave the accelerator at 2 o'clock on t- Thursday so I could pick my kid up from daycare. And I would have my son 24 hours a day from Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And do it all over again for 17 weeks. Okay. Ooh. All right. First off, so many roadblocks. The first huge one after you'd spent all that money and 
you're putting everything into this crowdfunding campaign. I think sometimes God like asks us, hey, is this really what you want? Absolutely. And it, it's like a test, but sometimes there's also like, it's it's actually telling you to go in a different direction. So how did you delineate between the two and what's your advice to other people who are in the middle of one of those crossroad life altering decisions? It's hard because you really do have to dig deep and decide what matters to you. There were so many points in my journey where it would have been easier to walk away. It'd been easier to take the put money. It'd been easier to take that job or to listen to the guy who said that this was a bad idea. But I also believe in listening to yourself. And sometimes you've got something burning in your stomach. And it's like, no, I see this. And that's no. not acid reflux. Exactly. Exactly. That's your creativity, honey buds. <laughs> <laughs> So I, you know, I had to get silent and really think because there was very real risk when you're spending your last dime. You know, if these don't sell, how am I paying my mortgage next month? What happens next? And that was, it was scary, but I don't regret having walked down that path. And that success that I found from having sold out of those cases was what made me go all in. And all in for me was going to the business accelerator. And it was also um, me selling my house. So I sold my house that I was working out of. I sold it. I used the money that came from it to survive for the next year. I bought a cheaper house and used all my profits in the business. Do you think when you're starting a business or any new venture that you believe in and you have had some prior success in, you have to do something that extreme like selling your house to really show the universe that you're ready to go toward it completely? I mean, I don't think that's necessary for everybody, but it was definitely, you know, it totally depends on what your financial situation mm -hmm. was. And I recognize the privilege that comes from the fact that I had a good career previous. So I had the ability to own a house that could be worth something and, and have me have something to sell. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's extremely risky. It's extremely scary. Um, you know, not just for me, but for the kid that I'm promising to keep a roof over his head. Needs all those meals. I'm like, damn it. Again with the meals. <laughs> kid. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's like kind of do have to do something that shows that this isn't a hobby. Mm -hmm. And I will say that investors always like hearing that because then they know that I've got skin in the game. This isn't something that I did, you know, to fill my time or so I can, you know, work from home or whatever. This is something I did because I believe in it. I believe in it and I'm not begging you for money. I'm giving you the opportunity to come into this, you know, um, this project that I think is going to be extremely fruitful um, across the board. And if I didn't, I would not have risked everything that I have. And what's your top tip for pitching to investors? Know your space. Know your numbers. That's what I got from going to Canopy. I was able to, I mean, when I started, I had no clue that the investment world, there's these things called executive summaries. And it's like a one or two page document that kind of shows what the opportunity is and all this sort of stuff. Someone had asked me for an executive summary and I thought that they were asking for my bio. So I put a bio together with the picture on and it's like, hey, it's Whitney, give me money. Um, and I was like, and now I look back on it and I was like, oh my God, they probably thought that I was the dumbest girl in the whole wide world 
world who deserves absolutely no investment. But I was able to under, you know, put together good financial projections. I was able to really get my hands around the industry. I was able to find new channels um, for sales. I was able to get some mentorship um, and some advisors who had done these things before. So I wasn't reinventing the wheel for every little piece of my business puzzle. Um, I needed someone who I could ask, you know, the questions that were important. Uh, a lot of people think that a CEO has to know everything. My, my job is not to be God. I, I can't know everything. My job is to have a vision and to put people in place who can help me execute that vision to the best of my ability. I'm not a numbers person. I hate numbers. I was a theater major. I did not have to take advanced calculus. This is not my thing. I brought on a CFO who could do numbers with me. I brought on a supply chain management head who could, you know, streamline all our purchases and make sure we got into fulfillment and work through those processes. So that was the team I put in place. And, you know, and I learned how to pitch. I learned how to make my opportunity something that they could understand quickly and and bite size and to circle back at the end of that business accelerator, we had an opportunity to pitch who? The Arcview Group. So I'm like, oh God, now I'm going back in front of these guys. They've already told me that they hate me. This is all so terrible. But this time I pitched online and I got a 4.8 and I was invited to the stage. And when I was invited to the stage, I won the quick pitch prize and I won $50,000. So how's that for full circle? Full circle. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I want to go back to something you talked about earlier, which is that a lot of people of color have been adversely affected by cannabis in the past, yet haven't had or been able to get the opportunities within this world now that it's legal. You also talked about something so fascinating on Trevor Noah's podcast, which is that the community, like especially the elders within the Black community, have a bias against it even more heavily than maybe some other communities because of the way it's pained them. Absolutely. And so if there is someone listening right now who's in a similar position to you, but knows that the community is viewing it in a way that's judgmental, how can they overcome that judgment and kind of, even if they can't get those people on board, make them proud of what they're trying to do? I think that it comes in a a couple different ways, and I I absolutely understand the positioning because those are conversations that I had to have. It's kind of like you're having like these coming out conversations. I, too, work in cannabis, and you have to go to people and let them understand um, why you're doing that and why it's important. So I would definitely suggest that they... A, have those conversations because we don't change stigma. We don't change hearts and minds without people seeing productive members of society who use cannabis. Because if you look on television, all you're going to find is bad kids behind a gym or, you know, criminal black people. And, you know, the vast majority of people are neither of those. We're everyday normal people. And so people need to see that in a very real way. People need to understand, uh, you know, legality, you know, that the fact that this is legal, that we can do this in many states and over 30 states have some sort of program in place. 11 states are now rec legal. And so they need to understand, you know, what the law is. And then they really need to understand what the opportunity is. And that's to say that if this was the end of alcohol prohibition and someone came to you and said, hey, do you want to start Kettle One with me? You know, 
the answer should be, yes, this is great. You know, Keta One, you know, <laughs> would be a great thing to start. This is what people are doing right now. They're starting the next Keta One. They're starting the next Grey Goose. They're starting the next, you know, Jack Daniels. Think about how many varieties live in that alcohol space. How many, you know, there's vodkas, there's rums, there's gins, you know, and brands across the board. That's what people are doing right now. And if you're talking about an industry that went from a gray market, because I don't really like the term black market, but um, uh, unregulated market. Into oh, this- I see what you're saying. Okay, so like when it wasn't legal yeah. too. Yeah, so unregulated, uh, um, illegal market, uh, if you will, to now this newly legal market. It's coming out of, you know, it's it's a big changeover. There's a lot of, of space. And as we move towards federal legalization, you know, the opportunities really open up. This is an opportunity for generational wealth. This is an opportunity to own things in spaces that aren't, aren't already inhabited by big brands and that's what they really need to understand is that these lower barriers to entry do matter if you were going to start a car company tomorrow and like you're going to lauren's cars (laughs) come buy them come buy lauren's cars they drive just like regular cars (laughs) everybody wants them everybody needs them they drive just like regular cars (laughs) That's awesome. If uh, if you were gonna do that, you've now you've got to fight with Lincoln and Buick and Tesla mm-hmm. and BMW and Mercedes and you know all the brands that are out there in the cannabis space. You know you don't have that. There aren't a lot of big legacy brands, so you have an opportunity to become that. And that's what we mean when we're saying lower barriers to entry. It's not like you're you know David fighting Goliath yet. You know, Goliaths are coming and some of them are here, but there's still a ton of opportunity. And for us to let as a community, as a POC community who has really paid a price on this plant, it does not make sense for us not to be able to take a large piece of this opportunity. And even if it's not something that they, you know, want to participate themselves, I really encourage them to also advocate for social equity and legalization across the board. Social equity is the concept that black and brown communities have paid a disproportionate price in this war on drugs and thus should have a prioritization and and licensing and permitting in the cannabis space. And in different cities and different states, it looks differently or whatever, but it allows these communities to really have a better shot at participating. And it's important that that law and that concept is baked in to, you know, new laws that are coming on board and baked into federal legalization. So it allows, to, you know, this is a great chance to build wealth in African-American communities and, and the Latino communities. I want to see this happen. Yes, That's a big part of why I wanted to interview you, too, because it's like I've been actually really disturbed by how few people of color I've seen enter this space. It's so it's disappointing to me to see. I mean, Jerome remains in jail and Chad has a dispensary on his old corner. It's like and now it's shiny and new and it looks like an Apple store and it's fine. But Jerome still is languishing in jail and Mm -hmm. his kids don't have a dad. It's insane to me to see it. Mm -hmm. Right now, we're looking at an industry that has about 4% ownership of uh, by people of color. And that number is extremely low. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There is still stigma in the community. We still need to go and reach out, you know, and that's 
that's why it's important for me to continue to have these conversations to tell people, hey, you know what? I got an undergraduate degree. I got a master's degree. I worked great jobs and I'm working in cannabis because this is a great job. This is a great opportunity. I need you to trust me that I've done my research and I want you to do your research as well. Trust me here. You know, so I need to be able to have those conversations, you know, one-on-one on podcasts. I want to be in people's churches having these conversations. I need to, you know, because also a large part of that is that those same people who are really stigmatized are the same people who are not using the plant. And they're missing out on medicinal benefits. Plant medicine is a heck of a lot better than opiate pain pills. It's a hell of a lot better and cheaper than, you know, having a rack of of medications that you're taking daily. I think the numbers are like 80% of people who are using cannabis have reduced or stopped taking other medications in their lives. So you're not, you know, able to use the tincture on your knee or you're not able to, you know, put CBD in your coffee and be able to give yourself relief for anxiety. I mean, I'm not asking that your grandma like rose up a fat J. There's a million ways. If she to wants buy. to, we encourage hey, her hey, to. She can come and but smoke hey, with me. It's so true though. <laughs> so, okay. Let's take it back to the company. We won $50,000 on the stage. Woohoo! How did we get from there to where you are now? And what does the future look like? Hard work. Hard work and dedication. You know, you take that 50000 and the introductions that it provides and you get the next 50000 and then you get the next 100000 And I was able to bring on a group of really great investors who are really dedicated to the project. And I was able to close a seed round, which was fantastic. And then I, you know, was able to put my head down and do the work, you know, start expanding the brand, spend the money wisely. And we were able to kind of prove the space. We were able to expand our offerings from... I launched with one SKU. Now we have 12 SKUs. So we've got so much more product. We have more opportunity. We were able to, you know, build out our social media base. We were able to work with other, you know, uh, influencers. We were able to find other channels. We went live on Amazon. We did projects with Touch of Modern. So it was really, you know, bit by bit, bite by bite, bringing people onto the team and letting them do what they, you know, what what they could. Now we're at a point in time where we are raising money again. I'm raising a bridge round. And so I'm out there again, talking to investors and talking about the apothecary opportunity. But at least now I'm speaking from experience. I've got a track record. I've got sales records that I can point and say, you know, no, this is a real thing, you know, come on board with us. And so I'm speaking from not necessarily a position of power, you know, it's not like I'm Google, but but at least a position of having done my homework and having a lot more information to back it up. And then I also really became passionate about advocacy work during that time too, because my mom always, you know, said a candle loses nothing of itself when it lights other candles. So I like the, I, you know, I wanted to see more women in the space. I wanted to see more women of color in the space. So if you're a woman of color and you come and talk to me, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to tell you, you know, the stuff that I wish someone had told me when I started. I'm going to, you know, hug you because I wish I saw somebody else who was a woman of color when I walked in that, that door the first time. And there's like white men as far as the eye can see. (laughs) I'm like, and I, I like white guys. They're nice. Yeah, but I just wanted to see someone who who reflected who yeah. I was. It's comforting mm. to whether it's a, an actual person who looks like you or you sit down with someone who's a kindred spirit 
when you're with someone who has had a similar experience in some way, it just makes you feel not alone. Exactly. And that's a huge part of any creative process. When we feel alone, we shut down. You want to see someone who, you know, is do who is like you, who is doing what you want to be doing. Mm-hmm. Being able to be that for other people is is powerful for me. So I started doing speaking engagements and and pushing advocacy um and uh the rest is really history. It's been an amazing, you know, blessing really, because I don't, you know, I don't have PR people. I'm still a startup, so I don't got a ton of money to spend on advertising. Like we've been running, you know, a tight ship. I make sure that, you know, if you you want to make sure your investment money is spent well, have a mommy do it because I am crazy about, you know, the way that I'm spending um, cash. But, you know, we've been in Forbes, we've been in Inc., we've been an entrepreneur, we've been in New York Times, LA Times, Hollywood Reporter. Trevor Noah's podcast, which is no small feat. Yes. It's hard to get booked on shows like that. Absolutely. I know. And and it's been, so it's all been an amazing opportunity for me to kind of uh, not only talk about apothecary, but hopefully open up this world to other people and have them consider cannabis in a different way, consider opportunities in cannabis. You don't just have to be a grower to work in the cannabis space. We need, you know, everyone from, you know, growers to doctors to, you know, lawyers, nurses, educators, graphic designers, influencers, security guards, POS systems, tech people, you know, it's a a real large spectrum um, and a lot of opportunity. So hopefully, if nothing else, it'll spark people's uh, interest in seeing what they can do creatively in this space. Just a couple final questions. So you mentioned being a mom a couple times. I don't understand how you did everything you did while being a brand new. You weren't just a mom. You were a brand new mom. Okay. In what ways do you think that was actually your strength? And for other moms out there who are in a similar situation, what's your advice? It was definitely a strength because uh, one of the things we talk about as entrepreneurs is what's your reason why? Why are you here? Why are you doing this? Because it's easy to quit. It's hard to be an entrepreneur. I can't tell you how many investors have said no to me. They say no all the time. That's what you normally hear. But my son is everything. And he deserves everything. And so I'm not just working for me. I'm working for him and his legacy, what he gets to do, what opportunities I'm able to afford to him. You know, he's what keeps me going. I can't lay under the bed when things go wrong. I can't quit because, you know, investors don't want to invest in me today. He still needs a mom who is able to provide for him. And so when times are darkest, he is the light. And it's also, it matters. Like, you know, even when I have a terrible, crappy day and the investment that I thought I was going to get falls through, he's the one who can come and give me a hug and say, mommy, I love you. And it's all okay then. And so hopefully, you know, I'm building a legacy for him. Hopefully I'm building an opportunity for him to go to any college that he wants to go to. Hopefully I'm being able to, you know, put him in the schools that he needs to be in in order to be whatever he wants to be. And so... That's what keeps me moving. That's what keeps me going. And more than anything, you're teaching him that it's good to take a chance on yourself. Absolutely. And, and not only that, um, we were playing on the floor one day with, with dolls and we're you know playing around and I'm like, okay, someone's got to be uh, the boss. Go get me a boss doll. And my, do- my son's digging in the box, digging in the box. And he comes in and he's like, finally, I, I found it. I found it. He comes over and the boss doll was a black woman. And I was like, oh, I've done it. <laughs> 
That's what I wanted. I want him to understand that he could be whatever he wants to be. And also to not have limits on, on what, you know, positions are. If you think, you know, he dug really hard to find the black girl because black girls in his eyes are who bosses are. That makes me really proud. Beautiful. So my final questions involve our little Whitney, the inner <laughs> child. I do believe creativity is intricately connected to the inner child. And so if little Whitney was standing in front of you and you're standing in front of her and you're looking at each other, what do you think she would say to you and why? It's better than I ever imagined. Because even though the things that I wanted then didn't turn out, you know, you go through a, a winding road to get where you want to be. My life is not easy. I work hard every day. Nothing is handed to me and nothing is promised for tomorrow, but I wouldn't be anywhere else. I wouldn't be anywhere else. I feel that I'm the captain of my ship, that I get to build my own opportunities, that I can be as creative as I want to, that I can open my life to other opportunities. I still do consulting. I do like, I get to put my hand in all these different pots and I sometimes not often, not as often as I should, sit around and say, you know, I've done good. This is a good life. And the same scenario is happening, so you're still standing in front of each other. What would you say to her and why? It's funny because the first thing that I think of is um, what my mom always says to me. You can be anything that you want to be. You can be anything that you want. Whatever you set your mind to and your heart for, it's yours. Whitney, thank you. You're so inspiring. I really love you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> seriously, the only podcast has made me cry. <laughs> well, creativity is definitely something to cry over. <laughs> and you've achieved a lot. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening and to my amazing guest, Whitney Beatty. For more information on Whitney, follow her at The High Mommy Life on Instagram and check out her brand, Apothecary, at The Apothecary and at theapothecarycase.com. Thanks to Liz Full for writing the show's original music. Follow her at Liz Full. Thanks to my intern, Kate Cordova. Follow her at CordovaKate27. If you like what you heard, go ahead and give the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and follow it on Spotify. Your support means we reach more ears and hearts. Also, if you're listening and you think of it, take a quick screen grab, post it on your Instagram story, tag me and at Creative, and I'll repost it as a sign of my gratitude for spreading the creative love. You can follow the show at Unleash Your Inner Creative at YouAreInnerCreative on Twitter. Join the Facebook group by searching Unleash Creative Community and find me at Lauren LaGrasso everywhere. My wish for you this week is that you find or reach out to at least one person who is driven in the same way you are. And that once you do find that person, you stick together to help each other achieve your dreams. I believe in you. Talk next week.